All right, so we're going to be starting out. This is part three of our series on the Great Commission. And in this lesson, we're going to be looking at what is a disciple. And I'll ask, uh, please excuse my voice. We had uh, Thanksgiving with friends and family and, of course, came away uh, with a cold. So I'm trying to get over this uh, post-Thanksgiving cold. Tis the season. Um, so we are week three on the Great Commission. Jesus gave the command to make disciples to his disciples, right? What did they think that a disciple was? What was a disciple in the first century? That's one of the things we're going to look at. So this lesson is part of our Bible 101 series. Bible 101, these are just the basics, the fundamentals of the Bible. And these are really important for us to have a solid foundation. It helps us to understand or have a more complete understanding of our Bible. So we have terms like covenant, right? Because we're reading a covenant document, Old Covenant and New Covenant. And we enter that New Covenant relationship with God through the sacrifice of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. But then what does it mean to be covenant relationship or redemption? What does that term mean? How is it expressed in the Bible? And so this latest segment of our Bible 101, we're looking at, it's Matthew 28, 19 and 20, and it's what we know as the Great Commission. What is Jesus telling us to do? What is the Great Commission? Because some scholars call it the Great Omission, the thing that we have left out of our faith walk. So just as way of review, I had mentioned this book, um, the late Dallas Willard. This is a book called The Great Omission. And this is his critique. And now his specialty was spiritual formation, spiritual growth. And he would point out that the church is going. We have no problem with going. We're making converts to Christianity that are becoming members of the church, but we're failing in the command to make disciples. And that's the ultimate goal. So check out that book. That is a, um, that's an excellent book if you're at all interested in spiritual growth and what this commandment is actually telling us. So uh, if you haven't seen parts one and two, it'd probably be a good idea. It's not required. You'll still get something out of this lesson, but it's always a good idea if you do go back and have a chance to view those first two lessons. So it's all about how we read the Great Commission, and we've looked at this in the past couple of weeks. And so we've noted that there are four verbs in Matthew 28, 19 to 20. They are, therefore, go make disciples, baptizing, and teaching. And what we spent a good amount of time on was, where is the command? What's the imperative in the verse? And the imperative is right here. It's make disciples. Because we want to look at the grammar of the sentence, and we want to say, where is the command? What is Jesus telling us to actually go do? And so here, it's make disciples. It's not to go. And so if you go back to part two in our previous video, we talked a lot about that. This idea that we place a lot of emphasis on go. Now, the go does take some of the force of the imperative, but it's not the main verb. And so the real question here has to do with emphasis. Does the emphasis on go become so loud that it drowns out the idea of making a disciple? And in some circles, that idea of go becomes the most important thing. And then we even see this. This is a sermon series. And it's 
go the Great Commission. Well, well, that's not correct. So it would make sense then why people think the Great Commission is all about going, but they forget about the making disciples. All right, so that was week two. During all of this, I put together a um, list of topics that I'm going to be covering. And what we've very briefly did was a history of the phrase, the term, the Great Commission, because that phrase, the Great Commission, of all the commissions in the Bible, they're calling this the greatest one. That's not in the Bible. And we just talked about where did we get that phrase from? And we noted that it's relatively new within Christianity, and it really became popularized in the late 1800s, particularly here in the West, as people were able to go out as missionaries, or mission became such an important piece. Then, last week, we talked about the command. Where's the imperative? And, of course, it's to make disciples. So, this week, we're going to look at the concept of disciple. What did Jesus mean by that? And then we'll briefly touch this week, but more next week, on the idea of baptism. What's the range of meaning that that word for baptism can have? How else can that be translated? And might there be a nuance to the word that's going on here in the sentence that we've kind of left out? And then we'll talk about what are we baptizing into? What does that mean? Into the name of? There's a whole bunch there. And the whole goal of everything is teaching to obey. It's about your, the path that you're walking, the path that Jesus gave us to walk here on earth. So ultimately, it's about obedience. We have to manifest the commands of Jesus in our lives through obedience, and that's how then Jesus comes into the world. And we did a little bit about Mark 16, 9 to 20. This is where some confusion comes in. Because Mark 16, 9 to 20, well, it has a variation of the Great Commission, not exact, it's a little bit different, and scholars almost universally agree that this portion of Mark was not in the original, meaning that somebody added it later. And so, what we're focused on is the Great Commission that is in Matthew, not the one in Mark. And then finally, what I'm going to show you is some other commissionings that are in the Bible. Now, if you think about this, it's a roadmap of two verses of the Bible, and you can see how densely packed these verses are. And if at any point in this you're misrepresenting any of that, or you misinterpret any of that, you can end up with something that wasn't intended for us. But if we can line them up, if we can conceptualize each one properly, and then line them up, I think you'll see that there's something quite powerful and significant to what is being said and why it's so important that we make disciples. How does that change the world that a simple convert doesn't? So that leads us to this question, right? What is a disciple or what is discipleship? So we're going to ask the question, what is a disciple? We're going to talk about making a disciple. How do we go about doing that? To do this, because we're dealing with a first century document, Matthew, then we have to go to the first century rabbi-disciple model. When Jesus is talking to his disciples, what's their model of discipleship that they understand? And then, 
I'm going to say, what about us, right? Can we have a modern day vision where we can turn our focus more towards the disciple making piece? And then I'll end with, so what? You know, what's the point? Why, why isn't it good enough, the, the Christianity we have today? Well, look at the culture around us. And I would say we're having very little effect on the culture around us. And part of that reason is, is we don't have deeply foundational, well-constituted disciples of Jesus. Okay? It's like the, the old saying, the church is a mile wide and an inch deep. And it's the depth that we're looking for in making a disciple. Now, all of these are, they're interconnected as I explain them. So, I might explain how you make a disciple, and that's going to help you understand what is a disciple, and all of this goes together. So, as I talk about each topic, they're going to be informing the other topics. So, if we go to the Hebrew, um, even though, you know, the, the New Testament is written in Greek, it's a Hebrew mind behind it. And so we have to go to that Hebrew context. What did they think about disciple? Okay, so the Hebrew word is Talmud. Now, Talmud, interesting word, can mean either scholar, the one who teaches, or the one who's receiving the teaching. So Talmud can go either way. But in Judaism, they refer to disciples as Talmud, or the Talmudim, plural, disciples. Now, Talmud is derived from a word lamad. Lamad means to teach. Could be teach, or if you're receiving the teaching, then to learn. So one who learns is a Talmud, a disciple. Um, You can find this, you can find the word, it's only used one time in the Bible. It's used much more in the Jewish writings, the Mishnah and the Talmud. But you can find it in 1 Chronicles 25.8. So it might be a late word in Hebrew, because Chronicles was the final book of the Hebrew canon, written after the Babylonian captivity. And what we see, you know, because the the Jewish people got removed from their temple, from the sacrifice system, you get the rise of synagogue and rabbis and disciples, because you don't have the temple. Now, in Galilee, then, versus Judea in Jesus' day. Judea is where the temple is. But in Galilee, you have a lot of people who had come back from Babylon. So, in Galilee, you're going to have much more emphasis on synagogue, rabbi, disciple, than down in Judea, which has Jerusalem and the temple and the priesthood. So, just understand, you can have different emphases within Judaism. So, that's the Hebrew. The Greek is mathetes, and sometimes you'll see it just says student or pupil, but again, it has to do with learning. Now, if you just defined it student or pupil, then what we have to add into that is the cultural piece. And the culture, again, is that Hebrew culture, not a Greek culture like a Greek student, but a Hebrew disciple. Okay, so you can't just take the definition, you have to add the culture into it to gain the fullest understanding of the meaning. So, if we look at disciple and discipleship, some key points. It's not just about knowing, like sometimes people go to school today to learn information. But a disciple isn't about knowing, a disciple is about being. So, yes, 
You're going to learn from the rabbi. But that's not your goal. Your goal is to be what the rabbi is, not to know what the rabbi knows. And that's much more about the fullness of your being rather than just having information. It's how you walk in your life rather than just having the information and I'll get along all by myself. No, I want to be just like the rabbi. What's the path the rabbi takes? How does the rabbi commune with God? How does his faith manifest itself in the real world? How does the rabbi act in certain situations? I want to copy, I want to mimic, I want to look at the way the rabbi um, behaves, and I want to adopt that for myself. And so part of that is a character development. So not only is it spiritual growth to become like with the rabbi as your model, but it's character development. Now, this is what the Bible talks about. It's the idea of being or becoming Christ-like. Right? That human beings have the ability to transform your soul, and we want to become just like the rabbi. And in this case, that's Jesus. It's about becoming Christ-like. And so there is transformational power. And this is discipleship is a process of transformation, of spiritual growth, of becoming more aware, becoming a stronger character. So it's that process of transforming your soul and your character, all exposed to the Holy Spirit. And now if you expose yourself to the Holy Spirit, there's a very natural outcome. Very naturally, the Spirit will mold or shape you into becoming just like Jesus. Now, obviously, what, what I'm talking about is your soul. We are a soul. We have a body. And so, therefore, anybody's soul can be molded and transformed. That's the whole idea of spiritual growth. And when you become more like Jesus, then Christ is manifested in the world. It shows up. You become the body of Christ in the world. And everything about you begins to transform. You show up differently to the world around you. Your understanding of God and ultimate reality changes. You, re you act and react differently in the world. One of the other pieces to this is when your soul is authentically transformed, then the fighting against your sinful nature gets diminished. It's about having a positive focus to where the negative gets diminished. And this is, again, another criticism that Dallas Willard has, is that so much of today's, because we're not doing the transformational discipleship making, that we focus on what he calls sin management. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. Stay away from this. Stay away from that. And the whole uh, walk as a Christian becomes a struggle against our sin nature rather than growing and transcending that sin nature. Okay. That's part of the power of becoming a disciple of Jesus, is that you're transcending our flesh. Okay, so if we look at this idea as becoming just like the rabbi, then we can get to a text like this in Luke, where Jesus says, A disciple is not above the teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. And that is a good summation of what it means. So our model, we have a disciple, we have a rabbi, a teacher, 
The disciple has a goal. What's the goal? It's all about being. It's more than just knowing. We want to be what the rabbi is. That's the rabbi-disciple model, and this is what Jesus is doing with his disciples. Now, Paul, let me give you an example from Paul, because Paul understands this model. So he's talking to the Corinthians, and Paul says this, and you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. So Paul gets the model. He knows what's happening. Hey, I'm the aspect that you're going to imitate as you walk, when at first you don't know where to walk or how to walk. So look at me. Now, eventually you'll grow and you'll mature and you'll be the one who then someone else will look to. Now, Paul knows this, right? I should say Shaul knows this. Why? Because before he was Paul, we say Saul, but Shaul. Shaul had a rabbi, didn't he? Shaul grew up in Jerusalem. Now he's from Tarsus, but he grew up in the city of Jerusalem and he studied under Rabbi Gamaliel. Some people say Gamaliel. Read Acts chapter 5, because this is where Gamaliel comes in. Unfortunately, Paul was not like his first rabbi. Check it out. The disciples are being persecuted, and Gamaliel stands up and he says, Look, let the disciples go. Let these guys go. Because it's one of two things. One, if this is a movement from God, if the movement of Jesus is from God, well, then you're just going to find yourself fighting against God and you won't be able to stop it. And if the movement is not from God, then it'll fall away all by itself. So stop fighting. Let the disciples go. Now, what did Shaul do? And you can read, by the way, Paul in Acts 22. He tells you where he, he grew up in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. But think about, think about Saul. Did he follow the advice of his rabbi? Did he take the path? Did he trust? Gamaliel trusted that God could possibly be behind this, and I might not know enough. So the, the action to take is to not persecute. Did Paul do that? No. Paul fought against that early Jesus movement. He tried to stop it. How did that work out? So Gamaliel was right. So Paul knows. That my point is this. He knows the rabbi-disciple model because he was a disciple. He never calls himself a rabbi to the people that he's writing to, but to those people in Corinth, now he's going to be the model for their behavior. So they're, as they're learning to walk, as they're building their spiritual foundation, strengthening their character in Christ, they look to Paul, and he's going to show them how to walk, okay? So, now we got to go, and we got to say, well, wait a minute. What's this first century rabbi-disciple model? What would it look like practically, okay? And one thing you'll notice that the goal of a disciple is to be just like the rabbi, okay? That's first. And then every disciple is eventually going to go on to be a rabbi and they, they will be a teacher of younger disciples so that the process repeats itself. So if we just go to a, a timeline of somebody's life, of course you're born, and at some point you're going to become a disciple, or, and I would say this is in the ideal world. And so in the first century in Israel, and this would have been the Jesus' disciples as well, at about 13 to 15 years old, 
you're going to become a disciple. If you become a disciple of a rabbi, that's when you'd become a disciple. And that discipleship is going to last about 15 years, 15 plus years. It's a long term process. And that gives plenty of time for learning and maturity and spiritual growth. Now, then we'd say, okay, now you grow up and you're at 30 years old. And what happens then? You become a rabbi. So it's at age 30 that you would stop being a disciple. You then, this is what the culture would expect, that you would then would go on to become a rabbi and then take on disciples. Now, if we go to Luke, Luke 3.23, what does he say about Jesus? Well, Jesus himself, when he began to teach, was about 30 years old. So we have to notice that Jesus is operating within what is expected or accepted within his culture. He's not alien to his own culture. He operates within the culture, and the culture recognizes him, which is why so many different people call him rabbi. And they ask him questions like, where did you get your authority? Which is their way of saying, who was your rabbi? Who was your teacher? That's what they want to know. So, if this is the culture, if this is the model, Jesus is 30 when he becomes a rabbi. Then the question we have to immediately should pop into your head is, well, how old are the disciples then? And this is where we run into a huge cultural problem. Actually, it's a huge problem. We don't know that culture. And so what we do is we superimpose what we think the disciples would have looked like. And then we're influenced by art. You look at a picture like this and you say, how old do those disciples look? Now, there's an age range there, but 50s, 60s, okay? And you realize how influenced by art we are. For instance, like these artists, they were not trying to think, what was a first century Jewish person, what would they look like? This is a Polish artist. Now, if he's painting in Poland in 1758, then what does Jesus end up looking like? Well, he looks like a Polish person, right? He's very light-skinned. He looks like he's about 20 years old here. And then, how about this disciple down here? What does he look? 65, 70, 75? And then, this person over here? And so you can see what we've built up in our mind is that the age of the disciples are somewhere in their 50s, 60s, possibly even their 70s. Because they're always depicted with gray hair, gray beards, balding, perhaps. Okay? So when we go back to this and we think the disciples were teenagers, and that's a little bit disturbing in itself, but John, John is probably the youngest. He's probably right about 13 to 15 years old. The oldest is Peter, and he seems to be, the hints, what, what the hints are, is that he's 20 plus, at least 20. Now, how do we know all this, right? Well, first of all, you just, the culture is all based on age, who's older, right? So if you read the Gospels, Peter is always in the lead. 
He's always the first to speak. And so in that culture, if you're younger, you're always going to follow the older one. So Peter speaks up. Peter gets out of the boat. It's Peter always doing that. He's the oldest one. And then in the second one is we have a clue. There's a little clue when they're, um, Jesus needs to pay his annual temple tax. And so the authorities come to Jesus. They say, hey, we need to collect the temple tax. And then you get this because the temple tax is somebody who's 20 years or older. And so Jesus, he says this to Peter, but so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Now, this is such a random thing, right? Hey, we need to pay a temple tax. Peter, go fishing. Take the fish that you catch, open its mouth, and you'll find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. Now, why is it only Jesus and Peter that have to pay the tax? Because of their age. The other disciples aren't 20 years old yet. So this is how, just looking at the text, we could say, ah, we understand something about their age. Now, by the way, John, John's the youngest. How do we know that? Well, go to the Last Supper. The Last Supper is a Passover meal. The oldest person, that's the rabbi, that's Jesus, he's going to be the guest of honor. No doubt, Jesus is the oldest. Who sits at the right hand of the oldest? That's the youngest. And so in this case, it's John. They're reclining. So who leans into Jesus' chest? That's John. He's the youngest. Okay. So if you think about the disciples, right, they assume that they're going to spend all this time with Jesus. That's a 15-year process, and disciple-making is a long-term process. Now, ideally, I'm going to say this as an ideal. It's an ideal. We don't live in an ideal world. But ideally, this is ingrained in the culture, and that's how it was in the first century. And then it's during those most malleable, most formative years of a person's life, age 15 to 30. By the time you're 50, 60, you know, you're probably set in your ways. It's going to be a lot more difficult transforming. Although the power of the Holy Spirit, nothing is impossible. You get the point. They live with Jesus. They spend all of their time with him. They study the scripture daily, discussing the fine points of scripture, showing how scripture is going to be lived out into the, in the world. Right? Jesus is helping them understand the most important things. How do you act? When do you forgive? So that the goal is to become just like him. And then he dies. He's crucified. And this is a crisis, right? But they get the Holy Spirit. That's Acts chapter 2. And the disciples begin to realize that Jesus isn't necessarily gone. He's still alive and they're interacting with him. And their development as disciples still continues, right? And then Paul, or Shaul, well, he meets Jesus on the Damascus Road. And he realizes he's still alive. And he goes off, and it takes Paul, from the time Paul meets Jesus to the time he goes out on his missionary, on his journeys, that's 17 years. What's he doing for 17 years? He's got a new rabbi. He has to learn a new yoke of the rabbi. And his soul and character is transformed from somebody who was upset and incensed and wanted to murder people to then the Paul that goes out with the good news. 
So, if we do a quick review, what's a disciple? It's someone who wants to be what the rabbi is. You want to be just like Jesus. It's a long-term. It's a voluntary process. It has to be voluntary. You can't be, it's not voluntold. You can't be forced into this. You have to choose to want to be a disciple. And this is not about salvation in the technical sense like we think about it today. It's not about conversion. Of course, you have to see Jesus as your Lord. But it's, it's after that we see Jesus as Lord that we decide to become a disciple. Very intentional. And so then we can look at that first century rabbi-disciple model. You can at least understand the ideal, why it's ideal in those years of life. And we don't live in a perfect world. But ideally, it would be better if it were happening when we were younger. But what about us? What about a modern-day vision? What about the modern world? For becoming a disciple of Jesus or making disciples. And so, one of the ideas here is that when Jesus says make disciples, the key is, is that you're no longer making disciples of Peter or Paul or John or me or anybody else. You're making a disciple of Jesus. He has to be the focus. He has to be the telos, the end goal of your development of humanity. Because now that he's resurrected and he's seated on the throne of heaven as the Christ, he remains the model of humanity that you're striving to transform into. He says, all authority in heaven has been given to me. That's what he says before the Great Commission. But he doesn't pass the authority along to the disciples. It isn't like their next group of disciples are going to be like them. Okay? And with the power of the Holy Spirit, it's possible for us to transform in that direction. So it's a goal of transformation. Our goal today, point your eyes on Jesus and move in that direction. With your goal to be just like him, we have the transformative power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says, And we who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, now that we can see clearly the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his image. With ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So what's happening to us? We are being transformed into his image. And it's increasing glory. It doesn't happen instantaneously. It's bit by bit, step by step. Every day we take a step. Now, we're going to need somebody to help us, though. We need somebody in this world, a teacher, a guide. This is what a pastor is supposed to be. Someone who, can, who has been down the path, who can help lead you down the path. Because remember, we're sheep. We don't know any better. So we need someone who's been down the path of life with experience and maturity and spiritual insight. And it's always easier for somebody on the outside of us to see what's going on in these predicaments that, that we face in life. Uh, redemption always comes from the outside. And through this, through this guiding, what we're doing is we're learning to walk as Jesus walked. It's a path of life, not just doctrine, not to memorize doctrine. It's how do you walk in life? First John says this, Whoever claims to abide in him must walk as Jesus walked. And that's not just how does my life unfold. It's the path you choose to take moment by moment. 
in the series on the good news that we just did, we talked about walking the kingdom path, the kingdom of God path, not the Roman kingdom path. Covenant, forgiveness, justice, and then you find peace. How do you find peace? The peace of God in this world? You enter a covenant relationship with God, which is dynamic. You choose forgiveness over vengeance. You prioritize justice over victory. And in that is a path that one day you discover a deep and profound peace. That's a life path, not just did we choose the right church denomination. And then what we do is we adopt the faith of Jesus. We adopt the faith of Jesus, not just have faith in Jesus. And the faith of Jesus is the faith that he had as he walked his path. The faith that he had in God's kingdom, in the power of his Father. Jesus walked in faith. It's the confidence that God's ways are higher, that following God's ways lead to the greatest outcome, even if you don't understand it in the moment, right? When Jesus is in the garden the night before he's crucified, Father, if you can take this cup away from me, please do. But if not, then your will be done, not mine. He has faith that what's about to happen to him is the highest good, and it was for the world. We adopt the faith of Jesus. And when you do this, when somebody becomes an authentic disciple of Jesus, that person is an immovable force in the world. It's like a rock. And this is why it's so important to make disciples. The world does not like someone who's just like Jesus. It's way too uncomfortable. It's the be in the world but not of the world. And it's truly becoming a disciple of Jesus, meaning you're transforming yourself to be just like him. It's a force for goodness and justice. It'll change the nature of the world around you, and it'll ripple out into the world as the hands and feet of Jesus. Right? The world becomes a different place when we transform. Okay, now, the last thing I want to do, and this is what we're going to work on next week, is why the idea then that instead of saying baptize, I want to use the word immerse. Because what can the word baptize mean? Well, it can mean to immerse. And, and I'm not just talking about the full immersion of the sacrament of baptism. I'm talking about immersion for a long period of time. Let's say you wanted to learn French. We could drop you off in France all by yourself, right? You're going to have to survive. That's an immersive course of learning French. And you will learn French because you're immersed in it. If you try to learn French from California, well, it's tougher because nobody speaks French. Okay, we'll talk about this more next week. This is the idea, is that baptism or immersion, we have to think about it on a time scale. So you have a short term and you have a long term. And the idea of this word for baptism can mean either one. You know, a lot of people want to say that there's one standard for baptism in the Bible. There's not. And this leads to a lot of confusion. So we have many different practices of baptism within the church. So on the short term, you have sacrament. And that's, this is what we see in our sacrament of baptism. It lasts about two seconds. Now, I am all for this sacrament. I think it's very powerful. I think there's tremendous efficacy in the ritual itself and what it means and to choose to go through that. But the reality is we're not permanently changed by it. 
and therefore we're missing something. It's short term. So someone says, oh, were you baptized as a baby? Yeah, as a baby. That's short term, though. On the other end of the, the semantic range for the word for baptism is long term. And it can be used for the idea of dying fabric. And when you dye fabric, it's a permanent change. And this is what we'll be doing next week, is that you dye fabric, you cannot go back. That fabric is permanently changed. Uh, the other one would be, you, you could also say for pickling, pickling vegetables, right? If you take a cucumber and make it a pickle, it cannot go back to being a cucumber. That's the power of immersion for a long term. And so we'll talk about this. In the process of making disciples, which is a long-term process, then the individual is supposed to be immersed in an agent for a long period of time. And what's the agent? Like, you have an agent that helps dye fabric, or you have a pickling agent for a vegetable. What's the agent that is, leads to the permanent change? It's the reality of, it's the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit the reality of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's your agent of change. Now, Paul, he even uses the word baptize. He talks about being baptized by the Holy Spirit. And then he says, um, there's another point where Paul says, we're all baptized by one spirit in the sense of completing one body. So there are a number of different ways we can talk about this idea of baptism, but it's pretty powerful. If you think long-term immersion and the the idea of a permanent change where you just can't go back. It's the power of thinking about it differently than the short-term sacrament, which is, again, very important. Okay, so, disciple of Jesus. You want to become just like the rabbi. And in, in our case, Jesus remains the rabbi, right? He doesn't relinquish authority. So we may have a teacher, we may have a guide. We're going to use the power of the Holy Spirit. Someone's going to help us walk, right? Again, not theological doctrines, but how do you walk in the world that leads you down a path so that you'll discover God's peace? And we learn to have the faith of Jesus, how he walked in the world. And we trust in that faith, and then we act different because of that faith. So this is the process of becoming a disciple. It's radically different than a convert. And I would argue, right along with Dallas Willard, you will change the world if we start making disciples. Because it is a transformative process. And it will ripple out to the world around it. So next week, we'll talk about baptism. We'll go into a little bit deeper. And I think you'll see, when we start putting all these things together, that it's a profound idea of building a group of people who look exactly like Jesus. Jesus.